We've been working through the book of Daniel, which is towards the end of your Old Testament, uh, and tells the story of how Daniel and some of his friends find themselves uh, ripped out of their homeland of Israel and away from Jerusalem and taken into exile um, in Babylonia. Uh, and it tells the story of their faithful resilience along this journey. And I was going to recommend a book today, but I realized I lent it to somebody and they lent it to someone else. So I can't hold it up and wave it in front of you, but I do know who has it. <laughs> and I will hunt them down. But the book is called uh, A Creative Minority. A Creative Minority. Uh, and it's about influencing culture as Christians, as believers, it's by um, John Tyson and Heather Grissel. Uh, it's a very short book. It's only about 100 pages long, I think, and is full of helpful stories and illustrations, but just paints a really vivid picture of what it means to be a church that isn't just hiding away, but is seeking to influence and shape the world around it. So I'd highly recommend that book to you. Okay, let's get into the passage today. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Daniel chapter 6. It says, It pleased Darius. Darius is the next king we come across in this story. We've seen a couple already. Uh, and this is the Persian king, Darius. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. They're kind of like governors, rulers in the kingdom. And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should, should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house 
where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're with us today. That's the wonderful belief that we hold as Christians that you're not just a dead God or a distant God, but you're a God that's come near to us. Jesus, you died and rose again and now you sent your Holy Spirit to live amongst your people, your church. And every day we can know you with us and when we gather together as your people, we know that God is here. And not only are you here, that you want to speak to us and that your word is powerful and will bring change into our lives, into our hearts, into the very depths of our soul. So we pray that this morning. Would you speak? Let your words bring life to our hearts, we pray. Amen. Amen. Throughout history, there are lots of stories of groups of people that, a bit like what happens to Daniel and his friends and the Israelites, groups of people who were taken away from their homeland and brought into a, a state of exile and a, an overpowering government, a regime that tries to change them, that tries to assimilate them into their culture, tries to change the way they think, the way they act, to erase their old beliefs, their old way of doing things, and to bring them into line with their way of doing things. And we've been looking at that in this series and using it as an illustration about what it means to be believers in Jesus in a culture, in a society, in a city, which often we feel can, very, can feel very opposed to what we believed and is seeking to assimilate us into a particular way of thinking and a way of living. And what you find is when, when ruling powers and authorities try to do this, there are two main ways that they can do it. There's what's called hard power and soft power. You might have heard those terms before. Hard power and soft power. So hard power is a bit like what happens in this story. is setting up some kind of ruling with a judgment. If you do this, bad things will happen to you. If you break our commandment, if you don't do what we say, then punishment will follow. But soft power is very different. Soft power is a way of, of bringing about change amongst a group of people in a very quiet, kind of manipulative sort of way about trying to change people's minds without them really realizing what's going on. And we have an enemy that works against the people of God in the same way. That it would be easy for us to resist the schemes of the devil if, if he would just sort of turn up, you know, with kind of big red outfit, pointy ears. We'd, we'd know what to do. But that's not how our enemy works. He seems to trick us and deceive us. The difference between 
hard power and soft power is one is kind of an overt and upfront coercion, trying to deliberately change things. And the other is just about soft powers, about making things just seem attractive to us. And that's what we see all around us in the world all the time, is different ways of thinking that are opposed to what we believe, but can seem very attractive, very appealing, can draw our hearts to them in a way that, before we know it, can have leave us changed. So uh, perhaps one of the main ones, one we talk about all the time, is that we live in a culture that teaches us all the time that we have freedom in everything, that we don't have any evil overlords, any government, any regime, any religion, any religious rulers or leaders telling us what to do, that we have freedom to decide to do whatever we want, to be whatever we want. We have freedom even from what our own bodies say to decide our own identity, who we want to be. And that seems very appealing. It seems like a very appealing idea. Of course we want freedom. What's wrong with freedom? There's nothing wrong with freedom, is there? The philosopher uh, Sartre, who was fairly bleak in lots of things he said, he said one thing which I think is very profound. He said, man is condemned to be free because once thrown into the world, he is responsible for everything he does. What he's saying, if you are responsible for everything you do, if you have nothing, no higher power or being, no other authority in your life over you, if you're responsible for everything, then you may have freedom, but it actually comes as a, as a condemnation. It will in, end up restricting you, will end up holding you down, holding you back. It will be a, a demanding influence on your life that will, in the end, will crush your soul. You'll find no freedom or liberty there. And all the time we live in this world where this soft power gives us things that are very attractive, that pulls our eyes away from Jesus, away from following the life he's called us to live. And it might not come as it comes to Daniel, where he's told, you can't pray, because if you pray, you're gonna break this commandment. But it has the same goal in mind. It wants to pull us away from communion, from relationship, from even prayer with God. To say, well, you have everything you need, you can find inside yourself. All the answers, all the ability to overcome all the problems, you can find them within yourself. And if you believe that, then why pray? <laughs> why pray if we can fix everything ourselves? All the time we live in this world that's calling us away from God, away from relationship with him. And yet, as believers, what we see in how Daniel provides this model of resilience and faithfulness to us is that we're not just called to resist the world around us. We actually are called as believers to 
shape and influence. But Daniel in this story is given this incredible position of authority. He was one of the three main ruling officials over the whole kingdom. And actually the king had made up his mind that he was gonna make Daniel his, almost like his prime minister in charge of the nation. A bit like the same what happens, if you know the story of Joseph in Genesis, it's a very similar story. That he's found himself with profile, with prominence, with a position of influence. And many of you here in this room, God has, in fact all of us, in different ways, God's called us and put us in places of influence within your own family, within your community, the street you live, the apartment block you live in, the job you have, the friends, the network of relationships you have. God's given you a position of influence where it's not that we just have to be resilient and kind of hide away, but our resilience can flow out of us and change the world around us. And that's what we see with Daniel, that in the face of this hard power standing against him, first of all, Daniel shows this kind of quiet faithfulness. That just in the small little things, there's nothing brash about Daniel's story. He doesn't walk around wearing a big t-shirt saying, what would Jesus do, you know? He just faithfully lives out his life. Faithfully seeks to follow his God, his ways of living. And as he does that, as he lives out this faithful life, opportunities arise. We find this is, this is the third king in this story. Later on we're gonna find this king ends up bowing and worshiping the living God. And three times that happens in Daniel's story. The three times we see Daniel being faithful and foreign gods saying, your God is the king, and submitting their lives to him because he's faithful. He's quietly faithful again and again. And one way that he does that is what people call a redemptive participation redemptive participation, which is a very, I guess is a kind of a grand way of saying just following Jesus faithfully in a way that's gonna change the world around you. And this is the story we find of much of Daniel's life, that he's seeking the peace of the city he's in. He's seeking to be a blessing there. The theologian Karl Barth said that the church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and it contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. See, what we're talking about here, I'm not just saying be, be a good evangelist, you know, go out and just give out lots of tracts and tell people about Jesus. That's not a bad thing, but there's a way in which you live, the way in which you do your job, the way in which you love your husband, the way in which you bring up your children, the way in which you just handle your money, the way in which you 
just walk through life that will shape the world around you. Another theologian, Leslie Newbigin, said, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions that the gospel is the answer. That when people see how we live, it will provoke questions in their heart. Why do you, why do you make decisions like that? Why when that person is being unkind, do you turn the other cheek? You don't, you don't seek to gossip about them or seek after retribution, but you seek to love them even though they're unkind to you. Why is that? And we can give an answer to those sort of questions. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about how he loved people. Let me give you a, a third and final quote by Michael Goheen. He says, seeking the kingdom means embodying God's renewing power in politics and citizenship, economics and business, education and scholarship, family and neighborhood, media and art, leisure and play. It's not just the way we carry out evangelism in these areas of lives. This is important, but not enough. It means the way we live as citizens, consumers, students, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, and friends, witnesses to the restoring power of God. Just in how you do your life, you get to be a light to the world around you. One of my kids yesterday was doing some kind of creative thing with, with glitter and they managed to pour this glitter everywhere and then they tried to clean it up but didn't do a very good job. And I hate glitter. <laughs> Honestly, it's just, it's just evil, right? Because it, it, glitter just gets everywhere. <laughs> and I spent so long trying to clear this glitter up. And then even just all through the day, I was just seeing there's a bit of glitter there on the sofa, there's a bit there, there's a bit there on my face. It's just got everywhere. And in a way, that's what it is. When you start being a believer who's seeking the kingdom of God, who's redemptively participating, seeking to love the world around you, you come, without knowing it, you become a little bit like glitter. You just leave a deposit wherever you go. You just leave a little glimmer, a little influence. I remember one time working in, a, in, in one of my first jobs when I was 18 years old. Uh, I remember that I worked in this kind of cabin. It wasn't a very nice office. There was about eight people in there. And one of them was used quite coarse, uh, special English language. And uh, when he found out I was a Christian, he, he started apologizing for swearing. I said, oh, you don't have to apologize. But he, he oh, nevertheless, he, he didn't feel comfortable. That's a bit of a weird illustration, but moments like that, are, are, they're signs of the kingdom of God breaking out when suddenly people, not because they feel a kind of a legalism, 
but because they suddenly see something about your life that's attractive, that affects them, and they think, oh, there's, in how they live, I can see something better, a better way of life, a better way of living, and you see little glitter moments of just the kingdom of God breaking out. Because it can sometimes be discouraging to be a believer, because we can find with friendships and relationships that we can spend years and years and years praying for people and nothing seems to happen, but little by little, God's working. And there are moments when suddenly God just breaks in powerfully, but there's often lots of times where it's just God uses many, many different believers to help shape one person or one organization, one group of people, and then suddenly the kingdom of God breaks out. Because people often ask me here at Liberty, when are we gonna do, when are we as a church gonna do evangelism? When are we gonna do some courses and some programs, some events? And those things aren't bad, but my answer is always, we're already doing it. (laughs) It's not that the church needs to put on some central event, it's that the church is sent out into the world, that the church is scattered out into our city to sow seeds of the gospel all over the place. That's what we see Daniel doing in this story. But one of Daniel's main tools is prayer. And with this story in Daniel, we're going to talk about prayer a little bit more in a few weeks' time. But here we see with Daniel this prayer of rebellion. Even though he's told not to, he goes and he prays. And if you notice in this story, he does it in a really prominent place. He goes to his window that faces towards Jerusalem. And he prays so that people can see. He wants them to know that he's, he's not going to follow their law. That he's not going to worship their gods. He will pray to the one and only true God. It's an act of rebellion. And for us as believers... In a sense, every prayer for us is an act of rebellion. When we gather as a church and we pray for our city, what we're doing is we, it's a, an act of rebellion because we're saying we don't like, there's lots that we love about this city, but there are certain things we don't like the way as they are and we want them to change. That's how every rebellion in history starts. People say we don't like the way things are, so we're going to change it. And that's what we do when we pray. So what we do when, we, when I pray for myself, God, I don't like the way I am. I want myself to change. But we believe that what's going to change things is the power of God. In my own heart, in my own life, in my own family, in our church, in this city, when we pray, it's an act of rebellion, but calling on the power of God to bring change in our city. Also, we see Daniel suffering, and we mustn't be surprised when sometimes as believers that we find suffering, and sometimes it can feel weird. I thought, God, you, you called me to love these people. You called me to serve in this workplace, and yet they, they don't understand me. They, they, they mock me for what I believe. They don't even want to be my friend, perhaps, because of what I believe. It shouldn't surprise us sometimes because through the Bible, through church history, we see it's one of the 
the things that comes with doing mission for God is suffering. It often happens. This doesn't have to be something that scares us, but can be a, a sign that we're walking in the way of Christ. A sign that God's called us to live a life like him. Also, we see with Daniel that ultimately he trusts in God's deliverance. He trusts in God's deliverance. It's one of the main themes of the book of Daniel, that God is in control and his people faithfully trust that he will deliver them. Even in, in how we're taught to pray, how Jesus teaches us to pray in the book of Matthew, we get to pray, our oh, deliver us from evil. It's a tool that God's given us in prayer to ask for his deliverance. It doesn't mean that all hardship suddenly disappears when we pray that, but it means God will give you the strength to persevere, to keep pursuing him, and as well means that we have an, an ultimate hope in his final and lasting deliverance for us. But in the book of Daniel, we see, in his story, we see, in some ways, we see an example for us to follow. But really what we see in the book of Daniel is we see a, a mirror image, a picture of Jesus, of how he walked about, of how he was faithful. Actually, quite strikingly, in this passage in Daniel chapter 6, there's lots of familiarities with the passion narrative in the book of Matthew. Let me just talk through some of these as we go. First of all, as we've already read in verse 4, it says the high officials, they came to find some complaint against Daniel, but they couldn't find any complaint because he was faithful. They could find no error in him. It talks about the same in Matthew 27, verse 14. That Pilate and the officials who were trying to sentence Jesus to death, that Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. He didn't know why the Jews wanted to condemn this man to death. They found him as righteous. But yet, even though they could find no fault, we, as we just read, they sought to, to accuse him. Even though he was righteous, they sought to accuse him. These jealous men came after him. And the same thing that happened to Daniel happened to Jesus. The, the religious authorities in Matthew 27, they sought to accuse him because they were jealous of all the attention that he was getting. And then when they, the same thing happens in the book of Daniel, as happens to Jesus. If we read in verse 11 of Daniel 6, it said, then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. They, they came and they found Daniel praying which is exactly how they find Jesus in the book of Matthew. When they go to arrest him, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's Jesus praying. 
And again, the, the similarities continue. They bring these kind of trumped up charges against him, says Daniel 6, verse 12. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of the lions? Then the king answered and said, the things stand fast according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Again, the same thing happens to Jesus as happens to Daniel. So they bring him before Pilate and they put these trumped up false charges against him. They say he was declaring himself the king of the Jews. Therefore we must crucify him. And again, the same thing happens in the story that the king seeks to use his influence to try and deliver him. It says in verse 14, then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to, de- to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. And Pilate does the same in the story of Jesus. Pilate, this Roman ruler who's in charge of the city of Jerusalem, tries to, set, tries to reason with them tries to convince them to set Jesus free, but they don't listen to him. See, the most powerful man in Jerusalem at the time, the most powerful man in this story, in Daniel's story, they're not able to deliver. Only God can deliver. Humans aren't able to do that. The next similarity we find that they're both condemned to certain death. Verse 15 and 16 the king commands, and Daniel is brought and cast into the den of lions. Then we find that not only is is he condemned to certain death, that in both stories we find, it says of Daniel, a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. Same thing happens to Jesus. He's crucified in the cross and then he's put put in a tomb and a stone is rolled across. It goes on here in Daniel to say, the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signets of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Same thing happened to Jesus, that Pilate ordered that the tomb should be sealed. See the similarities here between Daniel and Jesus. Again, it goes on, says in verse 18, that at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. Again, that's what happened in Jesus' story. That his disciples, it says that at daybreak, they ran to the tomb to find out what had happened. But in both stories, we find that when they arrived there, what they discover, it says in verse 20, as the king came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. They have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. In both stories, we find that a deliverance takes place that Daniel was delivered 
The king rushes to find out what's happened and he's still alive in the den. That his disciples run to the tomb of Jesus and they find he's not there. That he's risen from the dead. And that's, I guess, the one difference between these stories. That where Daniel was condemned to death but was delivered from death, Jesus was condemned to death and he died for us. He took the death that we deserved where each of us have been condemned to death but like Daniel we find a wonderful deliverance even from death itself. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 that death is swallowed up in victory. That each of us, although we may face or we will face an earthly death one day, that we get to live forever, raised with Christ as his people for eternity. That we've been delivered from death. That all our enemies are defeated. Goes on in this story to say that when the king finds out what happens to Daniel, he takes everyone that made any accusation against him and he throws them in the pit. And before they'd even reached the bottom, the lions had crushed their bones. Pretty gruesome story. But again, it's a wonderful picture of what Jesus has won for us. That ultimately, any enemy that stands against us, this enemy that with his soft power is trying to confuse and deceive and trick us, ultimately he's defeated, that he won't stand. In the same way that Daniel is, the king overturns the law that stood against him and pronounces a new law. He says this, the king makes a new decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven on earth. He who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. The king makes a new decree. He says in the book of Galatians that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The same way that this law stands against Daniel. And that he has to face the punishment for this thing. There's been a law that stood against all of us. And we've fallen short of God's standard. And yet we've been redeemed, saved, delivered, rescued from any curse that could have stood against us that Jesus has rescued us and raised us with him into life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your wonderful rescue that for all of us, we wanna live in this world as faithful witnesses to you. We wanna follow your way of living, but we know that we're all flawed that we all fail and make mistakes. That no one in this room is perfect in any way. We've all sinned and fallen short of your standards. 
and yet you've declared a new covenant, a new law over our lives that we can know forgiveness, freedom, joy because of Jesus' wonderful rescue for us. And I pray, help us this morning to know the depths and the richness of your grace and your forgiveness, one for us in Christ. And help us to live as faithful witnesses, not to try and somehow prove ourselves, but because we know now this is just the better way to live because of your grace. Amen.